Hello, dear listeners of the Education Newscast. Today we have another show in English language, and I'm very proud to have a very special guest from SAP today. And today it's Shane Paladin, who's president of services at SAP. And yeah, today we will discuss the topics of learning and leadership. Yeah. So Shane, let's perhaps just start with an intro for those who don't know you. Uh, could you please uh, introduce yourself? Let's say what your journey was so far. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm really excited to be on this podcast today. Uh, learning is core to my ethos, who I am. And so this is uh, actually a pretty cool experience for me. Uh, for me, I, I think you, you hit the professional front. So I run services here at SAP. Um, a little thing about me, I guess, I, I've lived everywhere around the world. I've been very fortunate at my time here at SAP. I've lived in Asia. I've lived in Europe. Um, if you can't tell by my accent, I'm American. I'm currently in the United States again. So uh, for me, I've just had an opportunity to experience SAP from just about every corner of the earth. Okay, thanks for sharing. So could, could you share what, what you love about your job and are there perhaps things what you don't love that much? Yeah, so it, it's a double-edged sword. I, I love having a global job. And for me, it's amazing to get out and understand all the different cultures we deal with. If you think from an SAP perspective, you know, the innovation that you find in every corner of the earth, it's, it's amazing. Right. And, and for me, you just get to meet really intelligent people that look at problems a different way than you do and are solving things that can be attributed to other parts of the world. And so the, the coolest thing about my job, I would say, is when I do get to find people that are doing amazing things, I get to be the catalyst. I get to be the, the, the agent in the formula that takes that learning and goes to another part of the world and says, hey, have you thought about this? And that's not only for internally at SAP, but for our customers. And so you actually get to provide a lot of value. Ma matter of fact, I just had a conversation with the, the CEO of Nike. So everybody who has their running shoes and all of that, he and I were able to take, talk about a conversation. They're doing a lot of work in, in China. And I used to live in Hong Kong and I was the chief operating officer for SAP in greater China. And so just the ability to say, hey, by the way, my personal experience living in China, um, shopping at Nike.com, seeing the buying patterns, all of those things, you know, this, this is what I would, from my perspective, from a strategy standpoint. And then it just got us into a lot of different conversations. And we actually are, we at SAP, I, I, I got him interacting with a number of our colleagues in China. SAP is helping to shape their entire go-to-market approach in China. That's pretty cool. And again, it's just the ability to go and connect all those things. So that's the great thing about my job. Mm -hmm. And I think you asked what, what I don't like about my job. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in pre-pandemic times, I was consistently on the road. And I, I love to travel, but, you know, there are times where that has its deficits, like when you're stuck in some airport or for an entire day, things like that. It's the travel aspect, the downside of travel, the upside of travel, you know, I, I can sleep on a plane, no problem, mm. uh, trains, no problem, but it's just, it's just travel is usually the, the negative bit. 
Yeah, one hears it often that there are, although there are so many bad things or tragic things, but there, it has also its positive things, like what you just mentioned. Yep. So, so, so I would now come to the topic of leadership. So, and we talked about a little bit about the pandemic already. So, how has your leadership strategy changed now? Uh, yeah, let's say from the starting from the pandemic. I would say the core of my leadership strategy is the same, right? I, I believe in a meritocracy. I believe in a learning environment, growing and building people. I think what has really changed is you have to take a step back. Uh, and it's the true uh, empathetic part of leadership. Mm -hmm. So uh, matter of fact, yesterday, I just sent uh, a, a note out to my key leaders. And then we have an all hands coming up. And I really want to talk about stress in the environment and mental health and, and welfare. And, and the reason why is, you know, you can't tell how somebody feels over Zoom, right? You can't mm, tell. That's you, not, yeah. <laughs> you can't, there's this emotion when you're in front of a human being, you can, in, in a personal way, it's very easy to see like, oh, there's something distressed. But when you're separated by a screen, you lose that, that bit of, of reality. Mm -hmm. and, and if you think about it, we've had undue stress put on all of us, whether it be, you know, um, you know, in our families, we've had added responsibilities. There's many people around the world that have lost jobs. Um, there, there, we have a number of colleagues at SAP where their significant other may have lost their job that puts undue financial stress. Um, my, my kids are, doing school remotely, right? So here mm -hmm. I am in my job working remote from home. And yesterday I had to pause a meeting and, and say, my apologies, I'll be back in two minutes. I need to make sure my kid gets on the right Zoom for, for their next session, right? Think about that, right? And, and all of it bubbles up. And we're now in Q4, which from a business standpoint is the most pressure that we put on ourselves. And then in, for many parts of the world, we're going into a significant family and emotional holiday period. And, and so you have to take a lot, of, um, a lot of thought about how we treat ourselves and, and give people permission to raise their hand and say, I need help. So I would say that's the biggest change through this is really understanding the, the emotional and mental well-being aspect. And creating the space and the, and the permission for people to just say, I need, I need a hug. <laughs> I need help, please. Right. That, that I would say is the biggest piece. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. And so you mentioned stress, empathy. Uh, so you mentioned also meritocracy as one of your general leadership principles. So probably that's not well known for everyone. Could you highlight that a little bit more? What stands behind? Yeah, so a meritocracy, I mean, if you really think about it, um, it, it com comes back to it's, it's an achievement. It's a, you know, advancement and achievement is based on performance, right? And so I'm a, I'm a big believer that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter who you were in the past. And, and think about us at SAP, we're a technology company. If you really think about it, what you were doing two or three years ago, is it as relevant as it is today? No. So why do we hang ourselves on these artificial 
things, right? And so for me, it's about what you do now. And I, and I ultimately believe in redemption. I make mistakes every day. I mean, mm-hmm. where I'm at right now, you and I are talking, it is 7, 10 a.m. in the morning. And I, my day started at about 4 a.m. because uh, I had to go and work with some customers. The interesting thing is it's 7 a.m. And I guarantee you, I've already made five mistakes today, right? And so it, it's that redemption piece where you're uh, enabled to what did you do last and is it of merit and let's move you forward. So that's kind of the key. And, and it, it goes into something called servant leadership. Now, my, mm. my personal story is a little bit different, right? So I grew up in the United States. I, I didn't grow up in an affluent family, right? So we, we had enough food on the table. We, you know, but, you know, it was like you had, you didn't have 10 toys. You had a toy. You, you didn't have a lot of clothes. You had enough clothes to get to school for the week. And that's about it, right? So, so we were relatively poor. And, you know, it was about for me to go and actually elevate myself out of the the poverty that I grew up in, I actually took a route in the United States, which is military service. So public service and they, and they pay for your university. So that's what I did where I took the, the servant leadership from is it was a transformational experience for me going through that public service um, motion there because I learned how much we can do. And, and it challenged me and the leaders that I had during that moment in my life and in my career, they really said, how do we make you better? And, and the thing about the military, you think you have, you know, the general at the top and the lowest ranking person at the bottom. But I still remember I had a general come in and he said, listen, the structure is upside down. He goes, I'm in service to all of you. It is my responsibility to give you all the tools, all the training, everything that you need to be successful at your job for the greater good of our organization, for our country, for everything, right? And it was a profound moment for me where I understood that leadership is to be in service of others. And it really comes down to using merit and helping other people be the best that they can be. And so that's really, you know, the core of my leadership principle and, and what I take for it. Because I think, I don't know about, I don't know about you, mm-hmm. Thomas, but do you want to be managed or do you want to be led to a future? I don't know anybody that wants to raise their hand and say, I want to be managed. Mm. They're like, let's go to this future together and here are the tools to get there. No, people want to be self-efficient or want to create something. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, yeah, one question I noted down also is uh, often you learn from others. Sometimes you learn through failure. So were there any failures or what, what taught you something? <laughs> Did you want to fail? I have failed so many times <laughs> in my life. You have no idea. <laughs> so going back to my public service thing, you know, on a daily basis, I failed there um, on a physical level, like things that you had to do. Right. And it taught me that I had to get up. There are things that I did to push my mind and body to levels that I never thought could happen. Mm. In the business world, same thing. So I've been an entrepreneur before. Boy, did I fail many times. I can't tell you (laughs) how many times, you know, starting a company, trying to get it off the ground. We had to pivot so many times. 
you just had the, the key was the next day you got up and, and um, you have to emotionally be a goldfish, a goldfish. They, uh, their memory lasts seconds, right? So you have to like channel your inner goldfish and, and let the, the personal pride piece go away. But I will say my startup experience, I had three of them. The first one was my own where it was self-funded and I worked with a group of people that I knew pretty well. That was fine. The other two were VC backed. When do you really need to understand politics? Like every, there's politics in, in life. You have politics at home, you have politics at work. Politics in a startup environment are the most fierce that I've ever seen. And so the biggest thing that I, that I learned there I would say was the the ability to communicate a vision and what that mm-hmm. means. And I would say that was the biggest learning I had. And my favorite failure is even though we were executing well, even though that we were moving along and doing the things, because I as a leader was unable to fully explain what we were doing on the commercial side of the business mm-hmm. to those in finance, in development, and the rest, that, to be honest, we almost took the company to the wrong direction. And and I remember sitting down with, uh, I was the number two guy in the company, and I was talking to the CEO and one of our largest investors. And they they spent two hours outlining exactly where I failed in that communication piece. And so I spend an inordinate amount of time now trying to over-communicate purpose focus, direction, because if people have that understanding, and it's more important, like take the services business. I guarantee you, you can talk to just about anybody in the services business. They can tell you what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. I don't know that I can go over to our finance group, or I can go into product development, or I can go to other organizations, and they can do the same. So I spend a lot of my time focusing on on you know, what I would call complementary assets to our business, those people that are there to support us and getting them along. So, and, and I almost, I almost tanked a company because of my inability there. That was a key. Thing. It's, it's also interesting, like this, uh, looking at failures uh, to have a challenge for learning. I think that's also intercultural different. So that's why, honestly, I think in the US, it's really, I think it's sometimes even another mindset, like for example, in Germany, where, Yeah, where a failure like of a company is not that uh, super seen positive. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. But uh, however, but just out of interest, could you name what what kind of companies you you have started? Perhaps that's interesting for for the listeners. Yeah, so the first one actually was a consulting firm, um, and then we built product, and we actually sold a product to SAP called Tau. So for all the people listening here that that work on Tau, is testing software. Um, my apologies. I wrote a lot of the code for it. I'm not a great coder, but you know, we, we did that. And that's actually how I came to SAP is kind of through that whole process. And I've been at SAP twice. So I stayed at SAP for a number of years in North America. Um, I had every job at SAP. I've done the windows, I've done the floors, you name it. That's kind of it. I started in North America and ran a number of businesses within that uh, region and particularly in the West of the United States. Uh, and then I went back out into the world and I went to a machine learning company. So I, in 2012, most people didn't even know what machine learning was. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took a, a machine learning company that's since been acquired and doesn't exist anymore. 
um, from no revenue to 20 million ACV in about 18 months. We went to the largest companies in the world and, and convinced them what to do. And we, we focused on healthcare and mm-hmm. uh, finance. On the healthcare side, it was pretty amazing. We used machine learning to figure out how to make uh, procedures better. So we were able to look at, uh, this is something I'm rather proud about. We took a look at surgeries, right? And so a very common surgery is a knee replacement because as we get older, it's one of our, you know, we're just not designed as human beings very well. And that's a, a part where a lot of people have to have knee replacements. So we took a look at um, the great thing about a medical system is everything going into an operating room is measured so you can improve. And everything coming out of an operating room is measured. In an operating room, that's a surgeon's domain and they're artists. Everything they do is based on their skill. You can't really do that. So we use machine learning to figure out the stuff going into surgery and the stuff coming out to surgery. And we figured that there were two surgeons in North America in a very small city that had better outcomes than anyone else in North America. Mm-hmm. Reason why is they used to be trauma doctors and they dealt a lot with gunshot wounds. And what they figured out is there was this nerve agent. It's very simple. It's like a two dollar, two US dollar shot, like a dollar euro, dollar half euro shot that you give to deaden uh, whatever limb you're going to be on. Because if you think about it, what do you do before you go into surgery? You get very tense. All mm-hmm. your get tense. And so if you're in there doing surgery and the whole, your leg or arm or whatever is tense. So what they would do is create a nerve agent and purposefully deaden everything. Just giving that one shot, the outcomes on knee replacement, people would be up and moving and have successful knee replacements like 80% better than everyone else. So that was kind of the power of technology and, and something that I looked at and said, that that's amazing. The last startup was a DevOps company that, you know, it would very cloud focused. The guys from Facebook who built all the infrastructure monitoring and ephemeral environment monitoring created a company. That company since been bought by, um, by Splunk last year for a billion dollars, which is great. And, um, you know, it was an amazing experience there. Really smart people, um, very different than SAP focused. And then I, I came back to SAP from that experience and I moved to China. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So a lot of learnings already. Oh, yeah. Wow. So yeah, every day. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so, so learning from failure was one thing. I think we learn also a lot of from, from others. So do you have any people where you learned a lot of like idol is perhaps too much, but uh, like mentors or people who really inspired you? Yeah. So I think um, to like my core ethos and who I am, You know, I, I look at my family. So my father had two or three jobs his entire life to, to mm-hmm. provide. And so it's that consistent get out of bed, do something. I kind of learned from him. Uh, my brothers as well, they all found very different paths. Um, and all of them used every, every um, lever and knob they could push to get ahead in life. And so, again, it's like get up, get out of bed, do something. I think, you know, if I look at SAP, um, there's a couple of folks. So uh, this, so I'll talk about Adair in a moment. So I work for Adair and everyone's like, oh, she's your boss, you have to say that. But I'll come back to her. Um, you, you know, there are bosses that I've worked for that were horrible. 
absolutely horrible. And I took away, and I'm not going to name them because that's not fair, <laughs> but the experience I had working for them really taught me about empathy. And it really taught me about how to motivate people to get a job done. And it's very simple. You can beat people with a stick to get an outcome, but that only works once because they're not going to come back and sign up to work with you again. But if you motivate them and drive them forward and enable them to get their job done and, and give them the space for them to learn from the, the experience, and they may not be perfect at, at, and the outcome may not be perfect, but if you give them the repetitions to go through it, eventually you'll get an amazing outcome. And so I would say there's probably two or three bosses I've had in my career, both in SAP and outside, that were the antithesis of this. And, <clears throat> and I would say working for them actually brought me more learning and value than working for amazing bosses. Now, um, getting, getting to a couple of them, so Rob Enslin, uh, who used to be here at SAP, who's now at Google, I worked rather closely with him at various stages through my career. And the way that he worked with customers and the way that he would, um, you know, I, I had a lot of customer interactions with him. The empathy that he showed customers really taught me a lot. And I would say that I owe him uh, stylistically as well as just, you know, his doggedness of making customers successful. I, I learned a lot from him. And, and lastly, I work a lot with Adair. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have to say her ability from a human standpoint to look at every facet of our business and do things for the customer. You know, she has customer first, SAP second, line of business third. She lives that. And, and you can see that come through. And, and sometimes it doesn't filter through down to every level. But I will tell you, it is an important thing and her leadership there. I've learned a lot from and, and every day it just, you know, I, I always take a nugget away from her. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I have a lot of fun working with her in, in my job. I like the nugget metaphor. So yeah, thanks for sharing the, all, all those insights. And any further, or should we move to the next, uh, next uh, topic? Let's move on. Okay. So yeah, we're very inspiring to share all that uh, insight. So so we now looked at leadership a bit. So now uh, I would like uh, ask to ask uh, some questions around learning and development. Sure. So so the World Economic Forum, but also consulting companies like McKinsey and so on. And I think it's anyhow. It's also more or less common sense that more and more people need to be reskilled. Yeah, like uh, the shelf life of skills is not. Uh, let's say your whole occupation anymore. So you need to, there are numbers like 60% of the workforces need to be uh, reskilled over the next year. So do you have any, let's say, estimation which skills you need, enterprises need need now more, also looking at the pandemic or after, after the pandemic? So I'm going to answer this question in a little different way. Um, mm -hmm. let's, let's see if our listeners like this or not. Um, I want to take a step back and talk about strategy for a moment. Mm -hmm. I think the world is changing. And I think that we're about to ent enter into this, this new forming world, right? It, it's like demand is inchoate. And inchoate is, you know, just forming and coming together. We live in a platform economy. And that's something that I don't know everybody is fully up to speed on. And, you know, platforms 
are effectively consolidated intermediaries, right? If you think about that. In, in unsettled markets, these intermediaries absorb complexity that's out there. And so when I talk about innovation in this context, it's not about coming up with something novel or new. It's process innovation. It's the ability mm-hmm. to take things and link them together. Like if you, everybody here loves, uh, you know, the Tesla story, Elon Musk. What, you know, our, our listeners that are in Germany, Daimler came out with an electric car before they did a petrol-based car, right? And that was over 100 years ago. And so if you look at Tesla, he didn't really do anything new. What he was is he was able to become, find the complementary assets in a symbol of platform, which was process innovation that gave us this novel car that you could plug in and drive for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers or miles, right? And so I think getting back to your question on the skills, I think we need to take a step back and I think we need to focus on innovation, right? And innovation is going to be key. And innovation management, as it relates to process innovation, I think is going to be the critical differentiator for our customers and for us at SAP, because it is about assembling those things that are already there and assembling them in a way that makes sense to drive the new outcome. I also think that change management is a underutilized asset and, and skill set uh, across all of our customers and us at SAP. Because think about it, how much change have we gone through in the last, let's call it nine months? Huge. It's constant. Yeah. yeah. And so the ability for us to process um, and, and do it. And if you can tie that change management bit to that innovation bit, I think that you can really change the world. And, and I, I would say from a consulting standpoint and from just a SAP strategic direction standpoint, if we can think in a platform mindset, if we can become the assemblers of the future, you know, the, and, and, you know, I think it was Deming or, or somebody, and I might, I might screw this quote up so somebody will correct me, but, you know, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Mm. It, and, I, and that going back to that change management and that innovation piece, it's our responsibility to go distribute it in the right way. That makes sense? Absolutely, yeah. Because I think in the past, we were very much focused on scalable efficiency, which is very important. And SAP supports so many companies in that. But I think in this new world and changing world, this innovation... Transformation, change management, and these new business models like platforms—I think they they will be uh, key, absolutely. And uh, if we look at SAP now to to align it a little bit to to, to yeah. SAP services, uh, moving to the cloud, so there are also a lot of challenges, yeah, like for for the skills of of uh, yeah. But, but on, on the SAP cloud side, so think of SCP, so our cloud platform. Mm-hmm. What's important for us going forward is we have to move customers from ECC to S4, and we need to get them into our public cloud environments. And I honestly think the big key for that is our cloud platform. And it, you know, a lot of customers have built complexity into the core of their systems. The ability for us to go back and offer a clean core, because it's very difficult for a lot of customers to go, hey, I want to go through a major business transformation and, and let's do it now, right? What we can do is help 
prepare them so they can. So think about just moving them from an on-prem version into, let's say, one of our, in our HEC environment or to a hyperscale, right? Ultimately, what you're doing is moving them from on-prem into just cloud, quote unquote cloud. Forget S4 for a moment. Once you're mm-hmm. getting into the cloud, the ability for us to introduce in that environment cloud platform, to take complexity out of the core and build it over on the side where it belongs, we can start to strip away all of the complexity and, and give them a path to move to S4 that doesn't take them years, but we can get it down to months and, and make it digestible. So from a skill set standpoint, what I want everyone in services to do, focus on cloud platform, focus on stripping out complexity, thinking back to standard. I think that is, and again, what is, what is cloud platform? It is a platform, right? We're in a platform economy. The ability to take that platform marry it up to Azure or or Google or to mm-hmm. any customer platform, that's the key. I think that's the future. And we were talking about uh, uh, our uh, service employees, but probably then this ups- the skills we also need in the market, right? Or amongst partners, amongst uh, customers. Correct. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, looking back at your at your uh, studies, so now more coming a little bit to, to personal development yeah. uh, after looking at more general point of view. So could you share a little bit, let's say, how your studies contributed, let's say, what you are today? You probably studied something with economics or IT? Yeah, so I have, um, it's kind of funny. I did a couple of things. So uh, when I first went to university, I have a, a degree in economics and um It has some some basic business, which was great. And then uh, also a theology uh, degree, too. Okay. And that was just because it's like, it was fun to just go and debate. <laughs> mm. And and that was kind of fun. Uh, later in life, actually, just um, a couple of years ago, I finished a master's degree and well, living in London. And uh, I had the opportunity to go to Oxford, which was an amazing experience. And with that, uh, it was all around innovation uh, and, and talking about strategy. So I kind of centered that, that degree around there. And, and it was, um, and the reason why I did it, so here's a, getting back to that meritocracy bit. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you went to school. doesn't matter. You don't need a master's degree. You don't need a PhD. And, and in many cases, I don't even know that a bachelor's degree is all that relevant It's about the critical thinking and, and being able to apply it that matters most. For me, going back to school a few years ago, it, didn't, it doesn't matter in my career progression. I'm not going to get the next job or not get the next job because I didn't have a master's degree. The reason why I took it is both strategy and innovation for me were like deeply interesting. And I truly went in with an academic mindset. And... I learned a lot of different models and I apply those things daily into what we do. So I would encourage people here, don't go uh, and sign up to get a degree if you think it's to check a box because waste your time and energy. Tech, go and study something that rounds out your ability to be critical thinker and to apply it. And I'm, I'm for that all day long. So for me, um, I would say out of all the things that I've learned, it is that critical thinking ability and the ability to apply learnings 
from other domains into the domain I'm in today. That's what helped me the most. And you mentioned models, if, if I may ask. So I also find models, frameworks yeah. are also very helpful. Can you share one, two of models which, which you like or which influence your thinking? Yeah, well, I mean, if you go through, like, there's a, there's a concept around quorum sensing. So mm -hmm. what, what they do is, in the past, if you think about bees, you know, they'll do a quorum, and in nature, they'll say, if... 80% of the bees think it's a good idea to do, then, then let's go and do it. In business, what you can do is do quorum sensing on new product development or other things and go out there and, and just say, instead of doing all this crazy analysis to let's go and do it, you know, if you put four people in a room and three of them think it's a good idea, then go, right? And so if you can apply those models to new product introduction, you can shorten cycles, get it out the door. So, so that's one, right? You can go back to the past where, you know, you've got Michael Porter and you've got his, you know, five forces and, and all of the things. Like if you go to BCG or McKinsey, all of those guys are there. There's actually a book I have. Um, sorry, I'm grabbing it off my shelf. No, just grabbing a book, okay. And, and it's called Innovation. And it's by a guy named Alan Afua. He's actually off of, um, uh, he's out of the University of Michigan, and he, and he did a lot of stuff at Oxford. But within this book, it's honestly, it, it's the most boring book in the world. <laughs> at night. But every model that, that we pay McKinsey or Bain or somebody to do is in this book. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's like the Holy Grail or... Uh, for what you do. And it talks about innovation, where to go, how to take a look um, to understand different capabilities. And for me, you know, I, I feel like I, my, I, I probably could have skipped the whole master's degree and just bought the, bought the book. <laughs> but but, you know, that, yeah. but I, I still use this book every day because I'll sit there and think about a business problem we have. There's already a model for it. You just need to go and look it up and apply it. And so when you do that, you have to remember the ability for you to look empirically at something and test it is critical. Mm. And gut only gets you so far. And, and, and I'm a firm believer that um, decisions are like interest in your bank account. It's actually the small decisions that matter versus the big. Everybody wants to, you know, creating the new, the iPhone for Apple was a big decision. But what you don't understand is for it to be successful, there were hundreds, if not thousands of decisions that led to that being able to be the decision. And so what I try to do organizationally and what I try to do with our team is to empower people to make a good decision. Mm -hmm. So think about that. We have almost, we have almost 20,000 people in services. If we can take 20,000 people And we can empower them and give them the tools and the processes and the models that enable them on any given day to make maybe just one better decision. Now take 20,000 decisions every day times five days a week, right? 52 weeks a year. That's a lot of goodness. So for me, the way I look at models and I look at all of this is it's not about how to do the big things right. It's how to do the small things right and how to enable and empower the people to make those decisions. All right, that already is a good move to the next question. So pieces of advice, so probably by the book. 
innovation management (laughs) and work empirically. So do you have any other, let's say, pieces of advice what you can can give, for example, younger professionals? Yeah, I I think failure is good. Mm. Uh, Honestly, if, if, if you're too comfortable, then you're not challenging yourself. And I, I would seek out mentors that, that enable you. And honestly, you have to be very, very transparent with yourself and others. And the best, the best advice I would say for younger professionals and even mid, mid-level professionals is that you have to take accountability for your own actions. If certain things don't happen, you got to look in the mirror and go, Again, did I make that best decision to get to this point? What are those small things that I could do that could put me in a better role? Listen, I've been passed over for jobs at SAP. I've been I've had days where I've not won a deal at a customer. I've had days where I've failed customers on my commitments organizationally and project-based to them. I've had days where I probably could have been a better leader. I just every day, and this is me personally, and I've done this since I was um, probably 18 or 19 years old. First thing I do when I wake up in the morning is what are the three things I need to do today to make an impact? The last thing I do before I go to bed is I do a um, accusation audit of myself. What did I screw up today? And how do I make sure I don't screw that same thing up tomorrow? It's the first time, the first few times you do it, it's soul crushing. It really is. Because the last thing you want to do is look in the mirror and go, I suck. I really screwed that up. That isn't great. Right. But I would advise people to take and, and hold yourself to a very high standard. And in the same vein, don't kill yourself over it either. Right. Because at the end of the day, this is work. And, and I also tell a lot of people this too. The next time you go to a graveyard and, and visit your loved ones that have passed, I want you to read the gravestones. If you can find one that says, here lies Shane Paladin. He wished he worked longer or he wished he worked harder. I, you're never going to find anybody. What you see on a gravestone is beloved mother, father, son. You see a passion they have. They were a footballer, whatever it may be. That's what matters in life. What we do here at SAP and in a professional life should amplify those things. So keep that in context. Wow, great advice. Thanks so much. So uh, three three last questions. Sure. Always a bit on the own development. So, yeah, I think we never have uh, enough time. So how do you ensure time for your own development, uh, for your own learning? Do you have any hacks or things which work well? I, I'm, I'm unsophisticated in this arena. It's very simple. I just put time on my calendar and carve it out. I try to also get away from confirmation bias. So I read a lot of different things. I mean, I, I read a lot. I, I enjoy reading. But I like to read things that are counter to my philosophy. So if there is a different point of view out there, whether it be philosophical, political, you name it, I will seek it out and try to understand it. And if anything, it just helps me. So um, when I see a competitor doing something, I, the other day I was engrossed in one of our competitors' website, taking all their material, looking at it, going, 
yeah, that is a better approach. Why didn't we do that? Right. So in, I, I just carve out time and you, you treat it like, you know, you treat it like it's the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Like a meeting with yourself in the calendar. And uh, do you have anything on your to learn list this year? So we all have to do lists. So sometimes we also have a to learn list, like things you want to learn. So I, I can see you and you can see me in my background. You can see my neglected guitar. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so for me, it's like I am a very middling guitar player. Uh, I am, I am so pedestrian, so un, unamazing in it. My goal this year on a personal level is I would like to drastically improve my, my guitar playing. Um, I would say that is very important to me this year. Um, on the other front, I would say uh, there, I have a mountain of stuff that I'm trying to really digest. So going back to the platform piece, I've got a bunch of scholarly articles that I'm trying to get through um, that are being published out of... Um, you know, some really smart folks around the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to learn a little bit more about that co-innovation topic and some of the new thinking there. So I think those are kind of the two things. So on a personal level, I just want to get better guitar. On the other level, I think going back to that innovation management models, things that are coming out, and some of this stuff is super dense and you have to read it four times to really understand it. So I'm kind of getting through that. Oh, also perhaps in the next services kick off, you come like Hustle with the Electra guitar on the stage. So yeah, cool. Hustle is far more far more interesting than I am. Let me just say that and capable. All right. So, what was your last most memorable learning experience? So, it's all learning experiences are different. Sometimes it's a video. Sometimes it's a talk. Um, that would be so. I have twin eight year old boys. They love Legos and. We, we're building an elaborate castle, uh, a Harry Potter castle. It's like 270,000 pieces or something. It's like an absurd amount of, you know, thousands of Legos. And, and you know, when when your kids want to build it, it means you build it. I, I you know, we're hours into it and we're getting pretty far. And, you know, I've got big hands. It slipped and I like broke basically hours worth of work falling over, fell off the table, the, a tower exploded on the ground. And, you know, emotionally I was pretty upset. And my eight-year-old, he's like, he's like, it's okay, daddy, we'll fix it together. <laughs> no problem. And, you know, that was a, a learning experience for me. Well, I looked at, you know, I failed. I knocked this thing over. Look at all this time I had wasted. My, my son was like, No, we get to do it again and it's fun, right? <laughs> so, so he saw he, he saw no negativity of it and he saw only the opportunity that he gets to spend more time with his dad and do it again. That was an important lesson where it just let me recenter about what's important. Great story. Yeah, sometimes our kids really can teach us something. doesn't need to be the most experienced professor or so, absolutely. So any sources you find helpful? You mentioned the innovation management book, but uh, perhaps books, blogs, uh, podcasts. I don't know if you hear, listen to podcasts or other things, just what you use to keep up to date, so what you can share with the listeners. Yeah, so there's a guy, there's a, um, a newsletter and blog called Stratechery. So I think it's strategy and technology, Stratechery. Mm -hmm. 
it's probably um, he's based he's based out of Taiwan. He used to work at Apple and Microsoft. The way in which he analyzes the technology market, and from both a business process, I mean, it is second to none. It is amazing. Okay, and so he sends out a daily newsletter, um, and I would I would encourage everybody here to spend the money to do it. I think that I gained so much insight. And, and competitive insight. Matter of fact, I convinced Adair to get it because I just forwarded these things, and she's like, "It's like this is really good." And she's like, "I signed up for it." <laughs> so, um, and, and it's just like the, they just did an analysis of kind of like um, taking a look at uh, Go- or, um, the antitrust uh, that just happened with Google. Really insight there. It also went back to how Apple's strategy with the iPhone and through the years and talking about their business model and what's happening there. I mean, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from uh, within SAP by looking at other people's models. And and he very much breaks it down into just digestible chunks that you can apply. All right. So I shared that in the show notes. Any podcasts or other books or anything We perhaps can share the services um, sub.com uh, page, of course, if anyone wants to look at that, your LinkedIn profile, perhaps. Yeah, we, we, we put out lots of great content and services. So uh, all the different podcasts. For me, I, I unfortunately am a bit more analog. I, I am very much a reader. So lots of different books, scholarly stuff, go on that. Um, podcasts, I, uh, I used to listen to them more because I would travel a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of COVID, I've kind of step down on the podcast more and I've, I've picked up books more. So I've kind of shifted <laughs> my, my, my medium, I would say. Can you share one, two books, but, but you would recommend uh, the listeners? Yeah. So the innovation management with Alan uh, Afua, it's a F U A H it's uh, Oxford. Mm-hmm. Press. I think that is great. And it's, it's not cheap. It's a, probably a couple hundred Euro. There's another book. And um, this is one where, It's, it, it's, it's called The Evolution of New Markets, right? Mm-hmm. And it's by a guy named Paul Jaroski, and he was an economist. Unfortunately, he, he, he died young, right? And this, this, de- this book is about, if I'm looking at it here, it's about 200, 200 pages. It is basically the sum total of his lectures that he gave and you know he's a very well-known guy but the way that he talks about supply and demand goes against like classical models and i think that if you apply this to where we go in the future it'll it'll bring it i will tell you it is dense it is one of those books you have to read probably three times to fully get it because this guy is so intelligent you know, that's the problem you have is you can't unknow what you know and the ability for you to communicate that to laymen like me, it takes time. So, but I would say that I use aspects of that book every day in what I do. So those two books I would say are from a platform economy and where we're going. Those are two things that I would recommend to people. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I think this brings us to the end. This were all the questions I don't know if I missed any question, but you would like to uh, say position also. I I would just like to say thank you. I I really appreciated the opportunity here and I'd love to come back and do it again. And 
if you want to ever dive into a topic, you know, I'm, I'm a bit nerdy, as you can see. So happy to go deep in anything you want to do. We need a new intro, the perps uh, in one year with an uh, electro guitar intro or so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe right. we'll work on like some classic Led Zeppelin, like acoustic <laughs> intro. How about that? <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, spending your time. Thanks, dear listeners, to, to spending the time. I found it very inspiring and interesting. So, hope you too. Please uh, comment on the show and share it on LinkedIn and all the social media. So, yeah, this was it. Just uh, keep saying uh, thanks and uh, have a great day, everyone. Bye.